Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Mary Beth Muskin, Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Mary Beth Muskin is the Regional Director of the Plain State Region of the Anti-Defamation League, CRC. Mary Beth graduated from the University of Nebraska with a degree in elementary preschool education and went on to obtain her master's in counseling from John Hopkins and a PhD in philosophy with an emphasis in adult and continuing education from the University of Nebraska. Mary Beth's Anti-Defamation League roots run deep. Her daughter, Emily, is the Associate Project Director of Education in the Cleveland Regional Office and Mary Beth's grandfather, I.G. Goldbog, was an active member of the Anti-Defamation League family. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. So happy to be here. So before we get into the work and the mission of the Anti-Defamation League, given a background of recent events of hate, violence, prejudice, what evidence do you see of the good in people? I think that it would be hard to do this work if you didn't find evidence of good in people. and. You know, as I look around and I see the some of the devastating things that has happened as recently as last weekend, I also saw the outpouring of of people and reaching out by others. Uh, just this morning, I was greeted with a hug and a, I'm so sorry. And and what can we do to help? And I think it's those acts of kindness that that keep us going on the hard work, the hard work that we have to put in every day to fight against some of the things that are happening in today's society. So tell us a little bit then about the history of the Anti-Defamation League, which is more than a century old. Yes. The Anti-Defamation League was founded in 1913, and the mission at that time was written to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment for all. All is in capital letters. That is still the mission today. Because if it's not good for one group, it's not good for any. And so we have a solid commitment to work towards the justice and fair treatment of all. What was the spark that, as it were, created this initiative to, to found the Anti-Defamation League? What, what was happening around that period of time that brought this right. organization to fruition? Right. So um, it was 1913, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. It was obviously far worse in Europe than it was in the United States. But immigrants that were coming over was were seeing the rise of it um, in the United States. And then in Atlanta, we had the pencil factory incident and a lynching. And um, they happen almost simultaneously, but they reinforced the reason why we need to be moving in this direction and doing what we're doing. You mentioned the lynching, which I think is infamous, but of course, we're recording this in the uh, Malcolm X Memorial Foundation building. The studio is housed here. And I think it's important not to draw a comparison or, or necessarily try to compare these things, but I think it's really important to note that the work of the Anti-Defamation League is, with your emphasis, about all people's rights. And it seems ironic and tragic that in some ways it, it was a lynching that characterized some of the early years and early efforts of the Anti-Defamation League. And I wonder if you are able to give any more context around that particular incident. Well, you know, I, I think there's 
there's been a lot of stuff written and plays written and things done over over the years on that situation. I I think the important thing to note is that whichever minority it is, these things are heinous and horrible, and they show a lack of humanity towards men and women. And wherever it's happening, it's not what we want to see continued. So we started off kind of a hundred years ago. Hmm. What, what is some of the trajectory of the organization in this moment today? What have been some of the things that the Anti-Defamation League have been doing? Well, the Anti-Defamation League really has a broad approach. I, I come out of education. Um, I retired from the Omaha Public Schools, and, and I was in education for many years. And what I love about being part of the ADL is that I have an expanded toolbox. I'm passionate about education, and that gets to still be part of what I do. But there's so many other things that the ADL does that, that can help us. So, for example, we have a very active civil rights agenda, and we look at everything from voting rights to uh, to legislative initiatives, to you know, supporting legislators and and helping with legislation that will that will strengthen hate laws, or um, work with LGBTQ issues, work with bias wherever it might be found. Um, we also do a lot of community education in the area of civil rights and civil rights issues, bringing in speakers that can speak on extremism and um, gerrymandering and the kinds of things that are part of our agenda. We have education, which is a really enormous piece of what we do. We have no place for hate in 40 schools. We have um, trainings, uh, you know, throughout where we can do trainings on bias and and all different kinds of things having to do with scapegoating and stereotyping and prejudice and bigotry and discrimination and defamation. So, you know, we work with birth through adulthood um, on a variety of within the workplace, within the schools to work on the issues that we see uh, that society is finding as difficult. And how do we know this? Because, because we also take, um, we also have a, a piece that does investigation. So a person who has been the victim of a hate crime uh, can obviously, can and should be taking that to the police. But if they are also the, the victim of a hate incident, there isn't really very many, aren't very many places to go with that. And so we take the reports of hate crimes and hate incidents. And we're very committed to not just taking down the report, but also working with the victim to see if there's things we can do to help them be less victimized and to help re-empower them and get them back on their feet. And and if whatever their situation was caused a societal issue, then is there something there that we could address? Or is there someone else within our community that can lend support? So it's hard to have an elevator speech with the ADL because we have this sort of... uh, large approach to how we how we get things done. With such a broad remit, I can't help but wonder, do you find yourself overlapping other organizations? I'm thinking about maybe the, the ACLU or, you know, other social justice organizations like locally, maybe Appleseed or people like that. I, I just don't know how, how you dovetail and overlap with other organizations. Well, unfortunately, there's more than enough work to go around. And so dovetailing really is never an issue. We love working with Appleseed and the ACLU. We have great collaborative relationships with them. 
their mission is a little bit different. They do a lot more legal and we do a lot more education, but, but that makes us sort of the perfect partners on a lot of different, on a lot of different things. We also work with the education groups like Respect. And so, you know, like I said, unfortunately, there's more than enough work to go around. And so, you know, being able to collaborate with other agencies broadens what we're all capable of doing and just makes our community better. I mentioned at the top that we'll start maybe with a positive note before we get into maybe some of the gritty, less pleasant detail and hopefully emerge with some sense of the future being more hopeful. So to take us on that journey, you mentioned, unfortunately, there is more than enough work to be done in this field. Not only is that a tragic observation, a very sad indictment of society at large at the moment, but I wonder how we square that with this idea that it feels like we as a society and, and societies across the world have been grappling with hate and discrimination for a very, very long time, and, and not least in the context of the ADL, it's, it's more than 100 years old. And yet we find ourselves in a time where perhaps it seems as if hate and the need for de-otherizing is even more pressing today. I'm wondering if you have a perspective on what is the state of play in terms of the need for ADL? Like, what is the data and, and what is driving this? Well, it would be wonderful to be obsolete, but unfortunately that, that has not been the case. And, um, in the last several years, we've seen a terrific increase in, in hate, hate crimes, hate incidents. Um, our last audit results were 2017 and we're waiting anxiously for our 2018 results to come out. But there was a 56% increase across the board in the United States with the last audit in terms of in terms of incidents of anti-Semitism and bias. And unfortunately, everybody else has followed suit. So where there is anti-Semitism, there's also bias. There's also negativity towards religious rights, towards uh, racial rights and parity. And, and it's difficult across the board. We saw an 86% increase in K-12 schools. And that is just staggering. Um, so... We're a long way from obsolete, <laughs> and we're more relevant than ever, which actually is quite unfortunate. And so what what we do is we just really work a little bit harder. We collaborate a little more. We put a little more passion and grit into each day, and we are so grateful for every one of our allies. And we work at creating and developing more and helping society understand and, and get involved. Because when we say nothing, we're saying volumes. And you can no longer stand by and just watch a situation and feel okay that you didn't do it. Because by just standing by, you probably did do a lot. Put 
so it's painful to mention more notable examples. So October of last year, the Tree of Life Synagogue, uh, I think 11 people were murdered in, in that, that um, hate-filled crime. And we're recording this the day after the weekend when uh, San Diego, the uh, Shabbat Synagogue, was um, attacked. And so we have these painful examples but we're also based in the Midwest here and, and you're leading the Plains states region. What are some illustrations you might be able to share that might give people a sense of what is happening more locally in our own neighborhood so that we don't get lulled into this sense that these are tragedies happening somewhere in another fringe, but we need to be mindful of incidents happening here in our neighborhoods. So I'm just wondering if you have some examples to, to share. Well, first, I guess I'd like to start with what happened in November, because there was the Tree of Life Synagogue. There was the murder of two people in Kentucky uh, in a supermarket, but only because the shooter couldn't get into a church. There were the murders in Florida uh, that were misogynist, two women, just because they were women, in a yoga studio. There were the bomb threats to CNN and uh, several notable uh, democratic groups, agencies, people. Um, and all that happened within a matter of a month. And then here we are, six, you know, six months to the day, the Chabad house in Southern California um, was attacked. And again, another vicious attack that only wasn't more deadly because the rifle was stuck. So, you know, I think... You know, we can say it's happening someplace else that isn't happening here. But unfortunately, we also have many incidents of um, certainly not at the same level, fortunately, but but of things that are happening in the Midwest. Swastikas with die and word die in public schools. We have situations where we have, um, you know, graffiti in our Benson area, where we have our little libraries that were vandalized with books and posters that were hateful towards uh, many, uh, certainly anti-Semitic, but also hateful in areas of bias. And, and I could go on and on with situations that are happening within our own community. And each time we try to deal with that, you know, in as, as hopeful and as, you know, swift and as positive a manner. And I throw all those words into one sentence, even though it's kind of an oxymoron, because it takes all that to do that. The other thing that ADL has been very involved in is anti-bias training for, for law enforcement. We do a lot of things that we're working on in a preventive manner because we feel that it can't, we can't eradicate or even address any of this without taking just such a multifaceted approach. You know, we have hate crime laws in the state of Nebraska, but we need to strengthen those hate crime laws. You know, we have, um, legislation that, that requires schools to do anti-bullying activities annually, but we have no budget with it. So what does ADL have that we can support that curriculum, help those school counselors, help those school teachers with curriculum that can support 
anti-bullying activities? How do we help people understand what anti-Semitism is, what racism is, what discrimination is, you know, by defining things, by making sure that we're working under the same terms. So I guess I kind of went off on a little bit of a rant here, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think, yes, we have it here. We have it in the three state area. Um, we've seen our hate crimes groups increase over the last couple years in Nebraska, in Iowa, in Kansas. And, you know, if we sit back and think, oh, well, we're lucky we're in the middle of the country, it's not as prevalent. Well, lucky us, we are lucky. It isn't as prevalent. But guess what? If we sit on our laurels, it will be. So some of the things we're trying to do, we did a um, a town hall meeting in January uh, on the Tri-Faith campus, and we did one, was it February or March? I think it was March in um, in Lincoln, and we're looking at doing some more of those to help our community pull together and to address things before we have to be sitting in a situation where we're saying we're so devastated, what do we do now? We want to we wanna be thinking about it proactively. We do not want to be dealing with hate reactively. given a context of hateful incidents, and they exist locally and certainly nationally and internationally. But you've also talked about ways that we can address not only the symptoms, but some of the causes. And and you've mentioned education. You've mentioned uh, working with uh, law enforcement too, to enable them to be able to deal better with uh, hate crimes as such. And I also find it fascinating that you've mentioned you mentioned uh, tri-faith, for example, so this this idea of interfaith relationships. And it seems to me that strengthening some of these social bonds across perhaps what we would think of as the, the, the typical divides, perhaps of religion, perhaps of politics, perhaps of gender or geography, also seem to be a part of perhaps the, the problem, that, that we have a fraying fabric of society. Is there any, anything else that you're focusing on in terms of trying to eradicate this issue? I think that the important thing is that we hit it from a lot of different angles and that we don't, and, and we look at the people that are doing this work with us as, as our collaborators, because the more the better <laughs> and the, the more different ways we're capable of hitting it, the better our results are going to be. So, you know, I, I think that as we look at people and we talked to people, we started telling, getting calls into the office about the little libraries and people said, well, what can we do? What can we do? And I said, well, the first thing is you report it and you report it to the police, but then you report it to ADL. We have to have good, clear records of what's happening. ADL is the largest provider of anti-Semitic data on hate crimes and hate incidents to the FBI. And so we have to have good data, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's bigotry, whether it's bias, whether it's you know, hatefulness against Muslims or whatever the group, we have to have good data to start with. 
please report it. Um, leave all the evidence at the scene of the crime. Do not remove evidence. I think sometimes, you know, a lot of times when I'm working with college kids that have had to deal with, they'll say, well, I was just so embarrassed. I didn't want it there. Well, I totally get that. But then take a picture on your phone. You're much better at it than I am. So, you know, make sure, make sure that you've got some kind of documentation so that we have something to go on. But also make sure that you're not putting yourself in a situation where you're putting yourself at harm. And then as soon as you get home or somewhere where you can, write down the details. Because you know what happens a lot of times as we get further and further from the scene of the crime or the day of the crime, um, we forget things or they become different things in our minds. And, you know, three different people think of it as three different things. So write things down, time, date, place demographics, and then what your perception of the situation is. Um, so there are definitely things that people can do to, to be involved. In addition, you know, if, if you hear something that doesn't seem right, it probably isn't. Say something. A summer ago, we had a banner unfurled on the interstate, and someone was driving by, and they, they looked at the banner, and it looked funny to them. But they're driving on the interstate. They really didn't have time to stop. So when they got home, they had written down the URL. They looked it up, and they didn't know really what it was, but they knew that it wasn't good. So they got a hold of me. And I thought about it and looked at it and said, okay. And then, you know, I, I know the group that had done it. And then about two weeks later, a picture emerged on Facebook, and we're able to identify the people that did it. So you never know. You know, typically when things happen, as we gather that evidence, we're never gonna, we never know when we're going to need that evidence someplace else. And then if we already have it documented and we already have it and something else happens, then we're able to move on it. So, you know, I think it's, it's important for all of us. We're a community. Um, we're one big community. And if we're not taking responsibility for what's happening in our community, then we're missing things. And typically, if someone feels like something isn't right, it usually isn't. And as I said before, not saying something is saying volume. So we definitely want to speak out, but in a way that's safe. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. So it seems to me that potentially there may be two areas that extend that idea of speaking out and maybe who who we expect to speak out, not just perhaps members of the public. I wonder what role, perhaps I should say, what culpability do our leaders have in terms of being part of the problem, but also what responsibility do they have to be part of the solution? 
Absolutely. You know, it's it's top down, bottom up, middle out. You know, I think our leaders have to set that example and they have to call out things that aren't right or that, that are biased or that are hurtful or that are hateful. By not calling it out, again, you know, implies acceptance. And if we are accepting hateful, hurtful language, then typically it grows. Which takes me to another area that we often think about then in terms of where speech happens, and and that's on uh, social media and and the internet. And you mentioned this URL on this banner across Mm -hmm. the interstate. As we've been talking, I've been wondering about some of the causes behind not only the increasing numbers of hate-based crimes, but also the virulence of that too. Other than thinking about the culpability of leaders, um, I'm also thinking about maybe the responsibility of I, I don't know, social media platforms or um, just the internet at large that has um, enabled, as it were, some of this, um, the flourishing of wonderful speech and the freedom of that speech, but also a toxic underbelly as well. You really hit the nail on the head. You know, it's there's so many wonderful things about social media and the internet and, and all the ways that we're able to stay connected and share information Although I'm still old-fashioned, and sometimes I think it's too much information. But, but so for all the ways that the internet is wonderful and helpful, um, it the negative aspects of it have kind of snuck up on us. You know, I saw it when I was in schools on how it could be so harmful and hurtful to people, and and I see it in this position as well. That there is a whole underbelly. There's the whole dark net. And, you know, you, you go back and forth on if I say something as, as a social media platform, am I now driving them underground? And is that better or is that worse? On the other hand, you can't allow hate speech to live on the Internet. It, it just isn't okay. It's hurtful. It's harmful. It's harmful to our society as a whole. It undermines what we stand for as a country. And so think something has to be said. What I think we've really found is, and ADL's been really, um, has, uh, has really worked hard to, to develop relationships and work with the creation of, of rules for internet behavior and, and how that should work on the internet. And I think that what we found is that a lot of times the, the platform already has so many things in place that would help them enforce good behavior or appropriate language and work on their platforms, but they haven't necessarily enforced it. And so, you know, we could just start by enforcing what's in place, and that would be a good beginning. And then we have to look at our laws differently because the internet and social media platforms are different. And our legislators have to get up to speed on what kind of questions even to ask as they're grilling social media giants and platform giants. And, um, you know, clearly I too have to get up to speed. It's something that I continue to to struggle with and work with. Um, and I'm forever grateful for the people that I surround myself with helping me. But there's so much that happens that we haven't thought about that we need to be thinking about to keep the internet a safe repository for people to be working and living on. Um, the other thing that I would say is that so often with the internet, something really benign can become quickly awful. Pepe the Frog was developed by a young man in his late 20s that worked at a toy store that wanted 
that loved toys, and he developed this carefree, happy Pepe. And all of a sudden, you know, a couple years ago, Pepe was uh, was holding up swastikas, pith helmets, and hate signs, and and bias and bigotry towards all. I mean, it was just it was horrifying. And um, in hearing and in this young man speak, speak and in talking with him after this happened, he came to the ADL and he said, help me take Pepe back, right? Because this was not the intent. So, so often things can happen so quickly on the internet that we hardly can can catch our breath in terms of what to do about it. And I think that Pepe is one really good example of of a meme that went viral in in a really negative, horrifying way, even for the creator of it. I was reading something earlier about some research that the ADL had done. It was uh, some research on the most frequent sort of hate term on Reddit, which I think at the time I was reading this was the fourth most visited website on the internet. So the most frequent sort of hate term on Reddit in anti-immigrant discussion groups and the most frequent word in that context that appeared on these anti-immigrant discussion groups was the word Jew. It seems, it seems daunting to be able to get to grips with this idea of how do we get Silicon Valley to come on board, given, as you say, they have some rules in place, but they're not enforcing them. So what is it going to take to get Silicon Valley and other players to mitigate the negative side effects of of the platforms they've created and perhaps take more proactive steps to render these safer or more positive places. I think that we are seeing that play out <laughs> in in real time, right? Um, as we see them testify in front of Congress and um, and sort of red faced going, oh my gosh, what have I done? And And again, I think you know, things that may have been initially done innocently and then are are skewed in a different direction, you know, they, they defy reason. You know, the in- individuals or the developers weren't necessarily thinking of them in that way. But then somebody else who didn't have the same good intent created something completely new out of something that was created rather innocently. And, um, I think we need to be looking proactively at that stuff instead of running after the train. We need to get out ahead of it. And I think that we're seeing that play out in real time right now in our own marketplaces. And I'm excited about it. And I'm excited that ADL is at that table and is is helping with that push to say, you know, yes, we totally believe in free speech. Where is the balance? You know, we have to make sure that we find the balance. And, you know, because there's so many things that we don't want to have happen because of free speech, but then there are other things that have gone past free speech that absolutely have to happen. Um, removal of people off the internet because of what they're, you know, what they're marketing. And that that marketing is then inciting things that become violent. I don't think we can talk without addressing maybe the the elephant in the room, which is many would feel that a lot of hate speech emanates and is incited out of our uh, most senior leaders and not least the administration and President Trump. And so how in the face of that does the ADL maintain, as it were, an integrity of mission 
while not being seen to be just an arm of a political movement? How do you remain apolitical in, in the sense that you have these values without seeming as if you've tipped into some sort of polarized political stance? Well, that is a really good question. Um, and I think that ADL is fortunate to have a long history and to have a mission that started with that long history. And when we comment on something or we weigh in on something or we uh, write a brief about something, it's based on our mission. It's not based on a political party. It's not based on a political feeling. It's solely based on a mission. So we've called out all administrations at one time or another. Um, so pretty much everybody can be upset. <laughs> um, but, but I think that we feel like we're doing our job, you know, if, if people can understand that it really isn't about a party, a political party. It really is about a mission and that, that our decisions are made based on that mission. ask you about about you you have this role and it, it's a very broad vision of doing good in the world but how do you get involved in this so let's start with your childhood what was your childhood like oh wow <laughs> it was a long time ago <laughs> i had a great childhood i did but i was raised in a home where we really welcomed all and i think that stuck with me um you know, we had Afghan families living with us through the years. We had just an just an assortment of of people and ideas and free flowing thoughts, and it was okay to disagree with your parents respectfully. And and um, both parents were hardworking, um, but but it was a it was a life of privilege. And I think that when when you look at coming from a life of privilege, it's what you do with that privilege that makes it a positive or a negative. So because I come from a background that is fairly privileged, I'm able to do and say things for others that may not be able to. I think that what's always motivated me is, you know, being able to learn from and work with others and that that's how my life has expanded. How did you, you I think we, we mentioned that your, 
grandfather, I.G. Goldbaugh, had uh, an affiliation with the Anti-Defamation League family. And I don't know if I'm misstating what you said, but but was he a first-generation immigrant? Or? Yes. Okay. So maybe we should start possibly <laughs> with, with him, because it would seem that perhaps that set the scene for, your, yes. for you to emerge. So, you know, I think that, you know, when you talk about immigration, um, people in the ADL family and the a lot of Jewish people have a very long history with immigration, of not being allowed into the United States, of not having anywhere to turn, of the Holocaust. Who better than us to understand how it feels to have the doors closed? We're also able with some conviction to say, never is now, and mean it. When we look at immigration and the welcoming of people, that's what our country was based on. That's pretty fundamental to us. And yes, my grandfather was first generation. He got over here and realized that not very many people could pronounce Isidore Godal and changed his name to IG. He was a book, a book peddler. And in 1934, they had a very anti-Semitic um, governor and in, in Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin wasn't far behind. And he decided that he would start a, uh, an ADL chapter in Minnesota and Wisconsin. He did it through the B'nai B'rith organization. And my mom, will, who is 90, will tell you of the meetings that took place in her home and meeting all these people as they would come in to talk about, you know, what are we going to do? How can we realistically be proactive? How can we, you know, how can we turn this around? How can we make our community um, a more welcoming community and a happier place for us to live? And and she will tell stories about these meetings and helping her mom bake things to put on the table for everybody to eat and, <laughs> and you know, how the breaking of bread is very uh, bonding for people and how how those kinds of things really brought the community together. So, you know, I think my mom was raised with it. My dad was raised with it. They brought those same sentiments into, you know, into our home. And um, hopefully I worked hard and my husband and I worked hard to pass that on to our own children because we feel it's it's really important to be, you know, to be a mindful community member and to be able to contribute. I want to touch just a little bit more on this context you've created of an immigrant ancestor and ancestors and some of the context of anti-Semitism in those early years. But also you mentioned having uh, a life of privilege, as you've alluded to that. And I wonder then in that context, on the one hand, you're receiving these valuable lessons about life and community and being mindful of others but also with privilege. And I'm, I'm wondering what it was that you saw personally in your life that made you realize that it was a life of privilege and that you did feel this sense of responsibility to turn towards other people that needed to have their rights protected and supported in some way. I think when you come from a family that also migrated to another country to be able to survive and knew that the things you were able to take with you were the things that could pack into a suitcase, you realize that pretty much anything can be removed or granted. And so to be idle as part of that process would be to defer to somebody else for your own rights. As I look at it, it through my own life, 
coming through high school, and I was raised within this community. I had to deal with several anti-Semitic incidents growing up. There were certainly a lot more of them when I was in high school, maybe not than now, but than in the intermittent years or in the years that my own kids went to high school. At least they were more overt. It wasn't that they aren't there. Maybe it was just that they were a little bit more underground. And so, you know, there were times when I had to think about how I wanted to stand up for myself, how I wanted to portray myself, how I wanted to describe myself um, when I was, you know, in a group of people, what I wanted my life to look like. Uh, I think if you're part of a minority, no matter what that minority is, you have you have to have those questions. You have to be able to define who you are. And that ability of being able to define who you are also helps you support other people with their own definitions of who they are, because it's something you've had to think about. Why the PhD in philosophy? <laughs> it's a PhD in philosophy of adult education. <laughs> Um, yes, well, because, you know, I think that we put a lot of energy into kids, which we should, and I'm a firm believer in pedagogy and pedagogical situations. But I think what I learned in working through adult education is that andragogy, which is adult learning, and when we look at adult learning, um, I think pedagogy, by definition, is learning for the future. Andragogy is, by definition, learning for the present. I find that kids learn better if they're learning for the present as well. <laughs> and that while there are a lot of wonderful pedagogical philosophies, that, that we really need to be applying more andragogy as we are teaching some of these life lessons and working with kids on what's important to them and what they feel they want to learn and how they can use it within their own world and their own life and, and be respectful of their own family unit and situation. build us back up in the last few minutes to to a hopeful trajectory and uh, so I guess with with that intention in mind I wonder how you feel in your own life and in the work that you do how you feel that you're making this positive difference that you want to see in the world I think we make a difference one person at a time if we can touch one life then we've made a difference. If we can put together 
uh, legislation and systems that can help people's lives, then we've made a difference. And I think that some of the work we're doing in the legislature right now is so important work, and we have to be patient with it um, in terms of expanding hate crime laws, in terms of uh, fairness in employment. Again, things all change when you get on the Internet, and if all your applications are online and you happen to have served time for a felony or a misdemeanor, it's always on your record. How do you get employed? So for me, how I, how I look at my life is if, there's, if there are tools that I have at my disposal and things that I, do, that I can do, and there's something that I see that isn't, isn't working in a way that's helpful for our society, then that's something I want to work on. I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But I am really hopeful, and I'm hopeful because I see a lot more good than I see negative. And, and that's working with negative every day. <laughs> and I still see more good than I see negative. And so, you know, I think that if we can reach those people that, that really are wanting and intending to make a difference, and we can find a way that they're comfortable with making that difference, then that's a great day for me. <laughs> How do you keep yourself whole? You see so many. You've talked about seeing the good in people. You've also talked about um, a lot of the hate-filled incidences that um, that you have to deal with and address. So how do you keep yourself personally uh, whole and in harmony? I think anytime you work with people where your work is people-based, it's really important that you do things that are good for you. So for me personally, I like to read, I like to walk, I like to spend time with my family, and those things fill me up, and of course my dog. But um, those are the things that fill me up, and if I don't get enough of that, then I can't help anybody else. Whether you're a counselor or a teacher or a legislator or a police officer, or a radio broadcaster that is that is trying to make a difference through your shows. I think that it's all on us to discover what it is within us that makes us feel better and and then do enough of it so that we can continue doing the work that we need to do. I like your call to each of us individually to find that within ourselves. And so let's close then with my invitation to you as someone who is a leader in this fight for equality and equity and, and civil rights and, and justice in, in a landscape that in many ways, I think if people look at the news too much, will just perceive as being scarred by hatred and violence and discrimination, because that's what you would typically see on the front pages. So for those people that feel that they need to turn to something positive, maybe do something positive, what might you recommend that they actually think about and maybe actually do to make progress in their own world and the world around them? There's a movement around Omaha on kindness. And I would challenge everybody, it's a great movement, but I would challenge everybody to take it a step further because you can be kind and still be biased. <laughs> so I would take it a step further and challenge yourself to look at what your biases are. We all have them. So what is it and what can you do about that as a person? And then, and then each day, look for the things that you can do that, that are helpful in terms of our community and our society in general. Because each and every one of us can make a difference. Getting out and voting, learning about candidates, getting involved in community, getting involved in, in uh, community programming, 
opening yourself up to learning something new. So it can be something personal. It can be something that reaches out to others. Um, but, but looking deeper, expecting a little more from yourself each and every day. I've been in conversation with Mary Beth Muskin, the Regional Director of the Plain States Region of the Anti-Defamation League, CRC. Mary Beth, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.